This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I think, Ms. McGill, we're going to start today's program with a little bit of reminiscing. you have an appropriate sound effect? Ah, yes, it seems like only yesterday, but in fact, it was 1988. There was a presidential election taking place that year, and the vice president of the United States, the ninny, who was shoehorned onto the national ticket by political fixers like James Baker, you remember him, George Herbert Walker Bush. Bush had distinguished himself, if that's the word for it, for being in cabinet meetings for eight years. He was the vice president after all, and uh, was noted for never once having spoken up. And to paraphrase, I guess it was Calvin Coolidge, you'd have to say that, you know, if you never say anything, they can't misquote you. Anyway, this guy nailed the Republican nomination down and um, probably distinguished himself (laughs) telling newsmen who asked about what his plans were under a Bush administration. And he had to query them back with, oh, you mean the vision thing. Anyway, he started out really, really far behind the Democratic nominee, Michael Dukakis, but by a steady stream of dirty, dirty tricks, he managed to pull even and pull ahead and win on election day. One of his dirty tricks was to um, impugn the patriotism of Governor Dukakis At one point, the governor signed a bill that no longer made it mandatory to say the Pledge of Allegiance in Massachusetts schools. Well, the conservative Republicans were all over that. They prompted Bush to say things to press like, well, I don't know. I don't know why he's got a problem with it. And to show that he didn't have a problem with it, Bush then set out to say the pledge. Of course, he didn't know it and wound up butchering it. But I don't know. The press didn't notice that part. Many years later, In Elk Grove, California, the pledge was challenged by atheist Michael Newdow, who said the phrase under God was something his daughter should not be compelled to say. Anyway, I thought it might be good if we took a look back at the Pledge of Allegiance. And to help us do that, we have Uncle John's political briefs to provide the framework. Ms. McMillan thinks we had Mr. Newdow on the program, but frankly, I don't remember it. We'll We'll have to check into that. Anyway, to quote from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader section on the Pledge of Allegiance, we have the following. As the 400th anniversary of Columbus's voyage to the New World approached in 1892, the nation planned to honor the date with a World's Fair in Chicago. Editors at the magazine The Youth's Companion, which was the Reader's Digest of its day, jumped on the bandwagon and became sponsors of the National Public School Celebration for Columbus Day, 1892. That's its full name. The goal? To get every public school in the U.S. to honor the occasion by raising the U.S. flag and reciting a flag salute. That meant, of course, that someone needed to pen an official flag salute. Assigned to write it was an editor named Francis Bellamy. He was a former Baptist minister who'd been forced out of his Boston church for delivering socialist sermons. The pledge he composed, which was recited by an estimated 10 million school children on Columbus Day in 1892, is different than the current version. Here's the original. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic 
for which it stands. One nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. According to the historian John Bart, Francis Bellamy considered placing the word equality in his pledge, but knew that the state superintendents of education were against equality for both women and African Americans. Bellamy's pledge quickly became part of America's culture, but people couldn't leave it alone. In 1923 and again in 24, the National Flag Conference, under the leadership of the American Legion, and the Daughters of the American Revolution changed my flag to the flag of the United States. And then a year later changed it again to the United States of America, lest immigrant children be unclear about which flag they were saluting. Author Bellamy protested that change, but was ignored. It also should be noted that in 1942, a decade after Mr. Bellamy died, what had been known as the Bellamy Salute was also changed. Until then, Americans placed their arms outstretched toward the flag with their palm facing down. Sound familiar? Yes, it was the same salute that the dreaded Nazi party was using in Germany. So... The gesture was changed, along with the U.S. National Anthem, to place the right hand over the heart. The next big change came in 1954, when Congress, after a campaign led by the Knights of Columbus, added the phrase, under God. That, of course, was in response to the infiltration of godless communists in America. According to Bellamy's granddaughter, he would have resented this change because he'd grown disillusioned with his church. But the change stuck, and the Pledge of Allegiance achieved its final version, to the irritation of Elk Grove's Michael Newdow. Now, in the 21st century, about half of the United States require that the pledge to be recited each day in public schools. I remember I was supposed to do it, but decided when I was about age 15, with the Vietnam War raging, that I didn't need to salute a flag. And that was the last time I did. I would stand like everybody else, but no words came out of my mouth, and I certainly didn't have my hand across my chest, or for that matter, in a Nazi salute. You didn't take a knee, did you? Uh, No, I did not. Anyway, it seems pretty clear that under God's going to remain in the Pledge of Allegiance. The U.S. flag code, whatever that is, specifies that any alterations have to be made with the consent of the president. And that would have to be a risky move for a president from either party, although we'll have to see in the years to come if there is a second Donald Trump presidency whether the nation's school children don't pledge to him personally. And before we leave the subject, we have to address the issue of why it is they sing the national anthem before baseball and football games. It would make a certain amount of sense in, say, the Olympics, when teams are from one nation or another, to honor a given nation's national anthem. But I've just just never gotten what it is about, you know, sporting events that are tied to a national anthem. And since I'm complaining about what I consider to be goofball nationalism... I guess that's what I'm doing. I want to cite a couple of items that I've had since June and October, respectively, of 2003. These were opinion pieces by Fareed Zakaria. We had a guest on several months back who corrected my mispronunciation of Mr. Zakaria's name. The two opinion pieces I saved because I found them so irksome (laughs) were titled Exaggerating the Threats. This was in June of 2003. And started out with the following line. It is too early to conclude that Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction. Well, Mr. Zakaria, by June of 2003, yes, it was. Compounding his felony, in October, he put a piece out 
titled Why the War Was Right, in which he said the following. Let me be honest. I thought that we would have found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq by now. We still might. But the United States has hundreds of people looking through hundreds of suspected sites for six months. This lack of evidence should surprise the Bush administration and should lead to a serious examination of pre-war intelligence. Yes, Mr. Zakari, and while they're at it, they should investigate this whole thing about Santa Claus. The truth is, the American public was sold on the notion of weapons of mass destruction, including Fareed Zakaria, because that's how they could sell a war in Iraq. We would submit to you that the real reason there was a war in Iraq had nothing to do with the supposed collusion between secularist Saddam Hussein and Islamic fundamentalists in Al-Qaeda, which was the first thing they tried to float. But in fact, the real reason we had a war in Iraq was because the military-industrial complex wanted to make lots and lots of money and have lots and lots of power. Oh, and the oil companies were kind of keen about a war because, well, I guess the world's second largest oil fields are under Iraq. And, you know, what do you know? After we had a war there, they, they divvied up those Iraqi oil fields among the big oil companies. Anyway, if you're the sort of person that pays attention to Fareed Zakaria, I would say consider his track record. And if we're going to look at track records, I suggest at this moment in time, we examine what The Economist called in its December 23rd issue of last year, the short history of tractors. Note of the magazine, historians disagree about who invented the tractor. Some say it was Richard Trevithick, a British engineer in 1812. Others credit John Froelich, working in South Dakota in the early 1890s. Still more point out that the word tractor was little used until the start of the 20th century. And only then did people start seriously thinking about the average farmer buying one. At that time, horses and mules pulled around an impressive array of farm implements from plows to reapers. The magazine notes that with hindsight, it's clear that the tractor had profound impacts. It meant that a given quantity of farmland could feed more people. Tractor-owning farmers no longer needed to pasture horses, each of which required about three acres of cropland to feed every year. More intensive farming also had downsides. Some researchers have argued that the tractor helped bring about the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Their powerful plowing techniques damaged the topsoil that had once prevented wind erosion. By the way, the Dust Bowl was entirely man-made. The U.S. federal government encouraged farmers to go and plow up the topsoil with their tractors, under the theory that rain would then follow the plow and keep the land moist and prevent it from blowing away. Well, it didn't go that way. The tractor reduced the number of workers needed to produce food by about 2 million, or 25% of farm employment by 1960. A couple of economists who like to tally up some things have argued that the, by the mid-1950s, farm mechanization had raised the American GDP by about 8%. And I'm surprised by the numbers that are, that are contained in this article. In 1920, despite rave reviews in The Prairie Farmer, only 4% of American farms had a tractor. Even by 1940, only 23% had them. In the 1910s, opportunistic businessmen had piled into the tractor-making business, hoping to make a quick buck, just as every other tech firm in Silicon Valley now describes itself as AI first. Many had no customers and were forced to close. The horse endured for a surprisingly long time. For much of the 1930s, the total productive capacity of equine animals, quite literally horsepower across American farms, still 
exceeded that of tractors. I'm sort of amazed to learn that it really took World War II to push tractors over the top. Up till that point, farmers thought it was easier to hire someone to manage a horse. You could always fire him. It was easier than it was to splurge on a tractor. But in World War II, labor shortages mounted, leading real wages to rise quickly. Suddenly, machines seemed like a better deal. And of course, machines displacing labor is one of the prime movers behind Silicon Valley becoming the uh, richest spot on earth. Another factor in the rise of the tractor was corporate restructuring. Tractors worked best on big farms, where the farmer could spread out the expense of a huge upfront investment. As a result, enlarging the size of their holdings and buying a tractor were two sides of the same coin. And all I can say to that is when you look around and see the vast scope of industrialized agriculture, you have to say, well, you know, the old family farm wasn't such a bad thing. By the way, we've known for, for generations now that if you want to combat the uh, resistance to pesticides and overuse of fertilizer and a lot of other agricultural problems, the way to do that is to not have vast monocultures. But this is not the way the agricultural corporations have taken us to our woe. Anyway, let's, let's talk about something more fun. In this case, sailing across the ocean, navigating by the stars and the waves. The same issue of The Economist has a wonderful piece about the best sailors in the world. And of course, they're referring to the Polynesians. Oh, I think the Melanesians and Micronesians did pretty well, too. But the Polynesians really have to take the cake as the world's greatest seafarers who managed to find every island, it seems, in the Pacific, no matter how far away, by just sailing around. The island references um, a, a navigator from the Cook Islands, a Maori, which is a subset of the Polynesian people. In this case, the ones that were more or less in New Zealand. And the article describes how Pea Patai, the captain commands his crew to make sail for Atiu, which is over the horizon to the southwest. Seeing his chosen star rising, he tells the helmsman to steer for it. And what do you know? Well, I think he picks a few other islands along the way, but what do you know? By dawn, the island appears. The ship he sailed, the Paika, run by the Te Puna Matama Voyaging Foundation on Rorotonga, which is the largest of the Cook Islands, is part of a revival in sailing skills and traditional navigation. This revival began in Hawaii in the 1970s, but has since gathered steam across Micronesia, Melanesia, and Polynesia. And you have to admit, filing all those islands in the Pacific is pretty impressive, given that nobody had a compass, a sextant, or a chronometer. And no, Ms. Millen, no GPS either. No, they relied on a deep understanding of sea swells, on clouds, on the flights of birds, and above all else, on their star compass, the nightly turning of the firmament. Much of that knowledge was closely guarded and often hereditary. But in the Cook Islands, as elsewhere, it was nearly all lost. With the advent of European and American traders, missionaries, and rulers, long-distance exchange ceased or increasingly took place on modern vessels and on Western terms. The arrival of the Paika, named after a whale-riding demigod, symbolizes the ancestral means by which the islanders came to where they are, and she's greeted with joy. It is a pretty amazing story. Uh, across Polynesia, as the acquired navigational skills had pretty much died out, by the 1960s, a New Zealand doctor and long-distance sailor named David Lewis 
found the practices alive living among a tiny handful of old navigators on the extensive Caroline Islands in Micronesia. Peace describes how one navigator, Tevake, arrived for a voyage among the islands on Lewis's boat with 15 people, including sleepy children, wailing babies, and a new bride recently purchased with feather money, it says. And no, I can't explain more than that. On-deck squalls and veering wind paralyzed Lewis's sense of direction. By contrast, Taveka stood with his feet wide apart, setting the course in relation to a cross swell, which Lewis had not even noticed. The piece says that navigators famously would lean their testicles on a moving boat to divine the cross swells. Maybe they don't still do that? Frankly, I don't know. Anyway, I think this is just, just a wonderful thing. If people knew the night sky, which is increasingly becoming foreign territory to everybody because there's such light pollution you can barely see any stars... If they knew the night sky, they would realize that they have above them every night, every night that's not cloudy anyway, a free map to guide them. This came in very handy for yours truly one night. And being radio, of course, there's no way we can demonstrate any of this. The interior lights were out in the cabin. But it really wasn't a big deal if you had some idea which stars to point for. Did you use your testicles? And no, it was not necessary to lean and uh, check the testicles on any of this. All right, let's move from astronomy to geology. Another piece I'm looking at here, which we I think we, we may have talked about in August of 2020, was how it was that uh, taking another look at the rocks of Earth indicates to the people who have studied it that living organisms leave a huge geochemical imprint on our planet. In fact, life makes almost half of all minerals on Earth, or at least has a role to play in their formation. In an article in Science Magazine by Jonna Thompson, it's noted that a comprehensive study of our planet's minerals reveals that almost half of all mineral diversity is the direct or indirect result of living things and their byproducts. Of course, you have to realize that living things produce the oxygen that we have on our atmosphere, and when things oxidize, well, that would be an indirect effect of life. The magazine reports in a pair of papers published in American Mineralogist, Researchers Robert Hazen, Shauna Morrison, and their collaborators outline a new taxonomic system for classifying minerals, one that places importance on how minerals are formed, not just how they look. This new method apparently required quite a bit of thought. If you take pyrite, for instance, fool's gold, well, apparently pyrite forms in 21 fundamentally different ways. Some pyrite crystals form when chloride-rich iron deposits heat up deep underground over millions of years. Others can form in cold ocean sediments as byproducts of bacteria that break down organic matter on the seafloor. Still others are associated with volcanic activity, groundwater seepage, or coal mines. Anyway, the punchline here is that scientists have artificially drawn a line between what is geochemistry and what is biochemistry, which they're pointing out is really rather more fluid than most people think. The human body, for example, has about 2% mineral by weight most of it locked away in the calcium phosphate scaffolding that reinforces our teeth and bones. And if anybody from the geology department would like to weigh in on this matter, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. At this point, I think we'll take a detour into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week 
last week for porch pirates after Quebec police warned the public against posting security camera images of thieves stealing packages from their doorsteps. Said an officer, in Canada, we have a presumption of innocence. Posting that picture could be a violation of private life. And I guess if you take that lunatic position to its logical extreme, you would then note that just because the policeman standing on the corner observes you walking away from somebody's porch with a large package, he must presume that you are innocent. I do have to wonder when I, when I look on next door, which I must get off as soon as possible, how many people post photos of somebody happily stealing their items right off their front porch. In most cases, the people take some effort to, you know, alter their appearance or disguise their appearance, but in many cases, they don't. They don't care. Yeah, and while it's true that posting that picture could be a violation of private life, uh, there seems to be a violation going on of somebody's personal property. But let's move on. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for, I guess you'd say, reasonable standards with the news that a Florida, and naturally it has to be Florida, school district has removed dictionaries from its library shelves to comply with a state law that restricts students' access to books that mention sexual contact. Among the 1,600 books removed by the Escambria County District were five dictionaries which contain definitions of the word sex. A district spokesperson said the reference books hadn't been banned. They have simply been pulled for further review. Of course, I do have to say that it might be good if people down there in this particular school district can actually read the definitions of sex and, and, and maybe learn something. And it was an ugly week for longevity last week with the news that the Guinness World Records people suspended the title of oldest dog ever, which had been held by Bobby, a Portuguese Mastiff, over suspension when he died last year. Skeptics had noted that Bobby's paws were different colors in photos of him as a puppy and photos of him in old age. We'll have to check with our veterinary sources on this, but as far as I know, dogs do not change the color of their paws as they age. And on the flip side of that item, we have another birthday story with animals, which is as follows. A Seychelles giant tortoise named Jonathan just turned an estimated 191, thus augmenting his status as the world's oldest living land animal. Jonathan is believed to have been at least 50 when he was brought in 1882 to St. Helena, a British island in the South Atlantic. Although well past his species' average lifespan of 150, Jonathan who's been alive during the terms of 40 U.S. presidents, shows no sign of slowing down. Anyway, the 40 presidents thing would mean that uh, they're, they're estimating that the tortoise was born during the administration of John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, which is possible. Mr. Mellon says that he's taken a look at the picture of this tortoise, and as far as he's concerned, doesn't look a day over 130. Apparently, his veterinarian, Joe Hollins, says his appetite remains keen, and he still exhibits good libido as shown by his regular efforts to mate with the two giant tortoises he lives with, one female and one male. Yay! And no, we don't know how old his companions are. 
And we have to note that it was a, a good week, I guess you'd have to say. Or, And I guess we would close with noting that it was a good week for fans of royalty in Denmark last week when they chose a new king. Well, they didn't actually choose a new king. His mom, Queen Magrith II, age 83, decided to make her boy the new king and step down. If you're keeping score, this is the first Dutch... If you're keeping score, this is the first Danish royal to abdicate in 900 years. Reportedly, Frederick, age 55, who can often be seen bicycling around Copenhagen, and his Australian-born queen, Mary, are expected to focus their reign on contemporary causes like climate change and gender equality. A historian... Carolyn Harris told Canada's CBC, they're going to be a very modern royal couple. And if you're like us, you have to regard the phrase modern royal couple as something of an oxymoron. Or just morons. Yeah, (laughs) maybe so. And our friends over at The Economist had a few words to say about this whole affair. Now, of course, The Economist is a British publication, and in Great Britain, they still have a king. The columnist Charlemagne noted that every family has an heirloom which is too precious to throw away, yet has little practical use. A dozen European countries have the constitutional equivalent. Kings, princes, and one grand duke still rule over otherwise enlightened places, mainly in Northern Europe. Think egalitarian Scandinavia, pragmatic Britain, or no-frills Benelux. Charlemagne notes that the problem with royal families is not so much the royal as the family. Siblings with grand titles but no real job abound and have a tendency to create trouble. For example, the Belgian king's brother once tried to partner with the regime of Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, of all people, on a forestry project and apparently it did not go well. The future Norwegian king's sister claims she can talk to angels and relinquished her royal duties to run a quack medicine business with her fiancé, a self-proclaimed shaman from America. And he adds, the less said about Britain's Prince Andrew, the better. And for a couple of minutes, we need to say a little bit less because we need to take a break. Let's do that. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. <laughs> 